Hi, I'm Dave Merlino. I'm Dustin Sweet, and this is the Know Their Story podcast. We talk to veterans about their time in service, returning home from war, and transitioning out of the military. Hopefully along the way, we'll inspire you to do the same with a veteran in your life. Because sometimes all it takes to make the world a better place is sitting down with a friend to know their story. Okay, there we go. We are on Know Their Story podcast episode 13. The baseball player in me hates saying that. I've been lobbying for a week to just call this episode 14. Uh, Uh, You're also lobbying to not have this episode. Just like skip it. Pretend it doesn't happen. It's like on the podcast channels, it would still label it 13. And yeah, no, all in, man. Let's do it. My favorite comedian said, you know, there's, you know, you're on a hotel floor 13, but they rename it to floor 14. But jump out the window, you'll hit the ground quicker. Yeah, yeah. I'm smart enough to know that I'm still on the 13th floor. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man. Uh, But yeah, no episode 13, uh, season one episode 13 uh which means we're going to go through this every year dustin yeah i know i mean it'd be great to have that type of job security Um, (laughs) let's try and turn it into a job first (laughs) yeah and then we can have security uh yeah uh, but joining us today staff sergeant with the u.s air force uh uh, many of my in-laws are in the air force so Shout out there. Uh, deployed to Afghanistan uh, several times, you said. Uh, please welcome Dustin Tucker. Uh, nice to meet you guys. Yeah. Nice to have you on the show. Thanks for coming out, Dustin. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And on a procedural note, so the audience can keep track, uh, when I usually toss it over to my co-host, Dustin Sweet, I will just say sweet this week. And maybe try and find different ways, like sweet, Cartman style or something. Um, but sweet Dustin, how's that? Or, or you're probably used to hearing it, sweet Jesus. Oh, man. What's that Micah used to say? Uh, Micah came up with a thing that I, he said, I used to say sweet Jesus, but now I just say Jesus, sweet Come on. <laughs> yeah, well, you said if you ever had a son, you'd name him Jesus. Oh, I, I guess hey, he's just, I, he hasn't shown up yet, but yeah. it's on the way. <laughs> All right. But I will uh, toss it over to you. You get, you always have our first our first. All right. Uh, well, well, welcome to the show, Tucker. Uh, I hope this gives you an idea of how uh, Dave and I operate. Uh, yeah. My first question is pretty straightforward, man. How did you end up? How did you end up getting in the Air Force? Uh, that's a kind of a long story. It involves multiple avenues. Uh, I grew up in a very small town that's about half the size of Taos. Wow. And, uh, I played four sports a year, worked two jobs, built cars, built monster trucks, raced sprint cars, dirt bikes, four wheelers, and, uh, you know, learned auto mechanics. I could have went to Nashville Auto Diesel College, but, uh, I needed to get out of Missouri and away from my very religious and pushy family. And uh, my grandfather actually served in World War II in Korea. And he was the one I was closest to. And so I decided, you know, get out, get away, get out of town, get away from Missouri and honor my grandfather. So I joined the Air Force. Nice. Yeah, I was going to join the Marines first, but my dad wouldn't sign for me at 17. So I signed up for the Air Force. <laughs> 
That's funny. <laughs> well, that led to some better food for you. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, I tell you what, the at the Afghanistan post I was at, the army actually had better food than the air force because they can use any spice they wanted. The air force has too many regulations on how they cook their food. So it is always bland. <laughs> that is the government in a nutshell. They took the time to write the regulations of what spices you can use in your food. Yeah. <laughs> and someone probably got promoted for that. Exactly. Yeah. So when I was in the government, I would tell, you know, the rookies would come in and I was like, look, there's only one way to get promoted and that's to solve a problem. Yeah. Not a problem to solve. You need to make one. <laughs> yeah. So, but it is, it's interesting. We've talked to several people now in terms of, of how they joined the military and there is not, not totally. I mean, a lot of the Vietnam veterans were drafted and there, you know, nothing you can do about that, but yeah. a lot of it is just, strict upbringings or just wanting to get out on on your own away from um i don't you know it's not i don't want to assume but just a, a a stricter family growing up and and that need to just want to go i mean i i didn't i'm not going to say my parents were overbearing strict but you know going to college I'm like my brother went to la i went to san diego for a while like just that seems like the time to go yeah yeah, I was uh, I was in I graduated here in Taos on a Saturday, and I think I was in Honduras that next Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, going along that line, you're looking towards that. You're like, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go. I'm gonna join the Air Force. Once you get to the Air Force, what was it like? Once you've achieved that thought, what was that like for you? Um, actually it was kind of a relief. Uh, basic training was sort of easy for me. Uh, I could take orders real well because, you know, strict family learn how to take orders. I was physically fit from playing four sports a year and doing all that. So PT and everything was easy for me. I actually got high marks and set records and basic, um, then, you know, going straight from basic to tech school and then to survival school and POW camp training and all that. Um, I actually enjoyed survival school because I grew up in the woods. POW camp training, uh, I was kind of a smart ass, so I got beat a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, did, did you learn or did you keep it up? <laughs> uh, I learned what not to do in the real situation, but, you know, in the, in the training, environment i kind of knew it was screaming and i knew they couldn't really hurt me they they blackened my eyes and they nearly broke some bones but i knew they couldn't really hurt me so i kept it up <laughs> <laughs> so um okay so from there what what was your occupational specialty in the air force the, Where did you go from there one alpha 351 it was airborne radar uh, you ever heard of the AWACS? yes yeah, I was, uh, I was a radar guy on there, gave radar coverage, kept the skies clear, provided close air support, uh, search and rescue, stuff like that. Cool. Nice. Um, was that, I mean, you, you mentioned that you um, grew up uh, working in mechanics and I mean, did you kind of gravitate towards that or, or how did you end up there? Um, 
Well, really, it was the job that they gave me when I signed up with the recruiter. They said, you want to fly? And I said, sure. And then that's what I ended up with. And they took my technical skills. And, you know, when you're flying on the AWACS, you're not only operating the radar or the communication systems or computers, you got to know how to fix them, too, while flying. Right. And, uh, so those skills came in handy then, too. How many on your crew for um, people wondering? Usually about 20 to 40 people on a jet at a time. You got, depends on how long you're flying. Cause uh, longest mission I flew was over 48 hours and you got, you know, backup crew members to take over while you go sleep. And then, you know, people are tired. So you got to have backup in case there's a fire and being the radar guy, we're the main firefighters and stuff. So yeah. that actually is uh, one reason why I had to get out. Uh, in the end, it was a fire on the jet. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's exciting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> electrical cost, or how did that come about? Um, we had a surface-to-air missile shot at us, and uh, that big of a jet, you know, you turn around. We got special equipment on it to confuse the missiles and make them go away. I can't really discuss that much because it's top secret. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, they turn the jet and they do all these maneuvers and it's not built for that type of movement and it catches right. fire and the high voltage equipment and yeah i was putting it out and uh when we we made it back to the base and they landed extra hard because the co-pilot was freaking out and i went to go sit down and he was like hey we're landing i was like what are you doing i was like i'm not sitting down yet i was just about to be and he slammed it down so hard it blew out my discs and vertebrae wow <laughs> paralyzed me yeah Oh man, I didn't know that's how that happened. That's crazy. Yeah, it sucked. <laughs> the Air Force just mark it down as a hard landing. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, uh, no combat injury associated with it at all. Even though you know we tried to get it, but they said nope. <laughs> man, wow. No, it seems like the direct result of having been fired upon by the enemy. Yeah, no, right. Yeah. 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 But that's the way paperwork works. So in total, how long were you were you uh, in Afghanistan deployed? Um, um, it was six months deployments at a time. I spent nine months over there and uh, six months down in South America doing anti-narcotics, catching drug traffickers and stuff, drug lords. Nice. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, how would I ask this? I don't want to sound, which, wh I'm trying to choose my words. I don't want to sound flippant. like, which was more fun, but did you find one more fulfilling than the other or um, engaging? Well, on the fun side, like you said, <laughs> I'd say South America was because on the days off, I'd go to the beach, drink a beer and surf, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, learn how to surf and do all that. But, uh, you know, in Afghanistan, we did get to go out and do sand dune trips and uh, see the local culture, eat camel and stuff. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, um, I think the building would be at the Afghanistan because uh, you know, lots of times I'd show back up a base and you know Marines and Army would come greet us at our jet and say, "Hey, you saved our lives today with the close air support." So nice. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Dust. I'm sorry. Sweet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> was the uh, 
what are the what are the Air Force regs on camel? <laughs> on camel, um, well, we'd have once a week steak and lobster night. The steak definitely camel. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we got it shipped into base. So, <laughs> little a little gamey or or it's it's good, but it's more chewy. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> not as bad. The chief actually ended up flying in some T-bones and having us all, all the sergeants meet up and have a grill out. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. With, with Air Force approved spices. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chief actually brought his own said, shh. Yeah. <laughs> Loose lips. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so you, you had your quote-unquote hard landing. Mm -hmm. uh, did you then spend time in the hospital? Like what was the, 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 the path from there? Um, well, uh, what surprised my wife and everybody that I was deployed with, I actually spent a week on pain meds at the deployed base. The flight doc didn't know what was going on. Cause I actually walked back to my uh, tent, went to sleep and woke up the next morning. And that's when I couldn't feel my leg. It was only my left leg though. That's that one just went dead. Um, so I spent a week trying to rehab it, trying to get a pinched nerve loose. It just didn't happen. So my commander came up to me and with the chief and the first sergeant and said, Hey, uh, okay. So if you're not going to go back to flying, we can either send you home and have another person come here and spend the last two months of your tour. And then their six months of their tour, leave their family early, or you can, you know, finish it out if you think you can. And I didn't want to end up having anybody come out to replace me, you know, make a hardship on them and their family. So I, I spent the last two months flying with a dead leg. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's kind of a, a, a BS way to present it to you though. Like, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> you going to be a dick or you going to actually do your job. <laughs> well, I don't mean to be a dick, but my leg's not working. <laughs> well, I was actually in the pool at that time trying to get it to start kicking, but it wouldn't. <laughs> Man. Uh, oh. But after that, I went back home. They, I went straight to the flight doctor at uh, Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma. And they sent me off base to a neurosurgeon. We did some imaging and got me ready for surgery and I spent wow. about eight months in a wheelchair before the surgery after the surgery they came back in and he said he pulled out 12 one inch uh, pieces of bone spur that broke off the vertebrae wow. pierced my nerve nearly cutting it in half he was wow. able to wrap a mesh thing around the nerve because it was still connected and it would grow back but he had to hold it together he rubbed something against my toe and I was like hey I could feel it finally <laughs> wow. After that, it was a long road of learning how to walk again and using a walker, a cane. And uh, about two years later, after they stuck me in an office doing commander support staff, bossing around officers and stuff. <laughs> uh, well, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. That was the cool thing about being a flyer is you, you're in a squadron of officers and enlisted. You, you work so close together. Officer walks in, you don't stand at attention. It's just too much. There's too many officers that come in. Um, but yeah, eventually I, I did get medically retired at 90% at that point in 2014. So it took two years and 
and then I got out and I was broke actually because it took about six months to get my first uh, disability paycheck. Wow. And I tried to get an apartment, couldn't do it. I actually lost car insurance. I lost all kinds of stuff. And then once I finally get the money, I started going to college, got an apartment and uh, I turned to drinking heavily. So. In the, in the six months or um, just, um, I want to see how I want to, um, because what, I mean, you're, it's, it's a very common thing. Every Vietnam veteran that we've talked to, like, it's not, it's not anything to shy away from. It's just, it's a very common experience. Um, how, I mean, did you reach a point on your own where you're like, okay, I, I don't need to do this anymore. Or what, how did, how did that kind of arc go along? It started after I got back from that deployment, you know, bummed out, um, you know, a couple, a couple times seeing your friends die and then, you know, you have to do a couple things and take some lives yourself. You know, you do a lot of stuff and then all of a sudden your body's broken, you're basically useless and the military's throwing you away. So I started drinking before I got out and, you know, my wife at the time was cheating on me and, uh, you know, I was going through a lot. So whenever I got out, got divorced, kept drinking, um, I got to a point where I just, I got tired of it. I got tired of killing myself slowly. And I went to anger management. I went to Alcoholic Anonymous and I got some uh, PTSD and psychiatric help. So. Congratulations. I mean, that, seriously, I mean, that, that, I know for people listening, it's like, oh yeah, well you just go do these things and it's easy to sit on the side and say that, but to actually have gone through that, like, congratulations. That, yeah, it was, uh, it was a hard thing to choose to do on my own. And even sitting in a psychiatrist's office, you know, as a veteran, you know, you know how it is. We're all like, this is stupid. You know, what the heck, what, what do they know? You know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, would, uh, you used an interesting term a minute ago. You, you said, uh, uh, they threw you away. Uh, yeah. What, what, uh, what part of the, what part of the release process made that the feeling? Um, that was the part where, you know, I could do office duties if I wanted to, and I wanted to stay in. Yeah. Um, but they said, no, not with a broken back. You can't do your main job. You know, we're not going to cross train you at this point, spend the money to retrain you. Um, and then as I was getting out, it was basically sign this paperwork and walk out the door. And, you know, yeah. it wasn't no big goodbyes. There wasn't no squadron ceremonies like you see with everybody else. Uh, it was just here, sign this paperwork, get out. <laughs> wow. And it's been 10 years in as a sergeant training most of the radar guys that were there after me and uh, leading people in the battle, uh, defending the base at times, you know, it was, it was, uh, it's like, well, what were my accomplishments worth at that point? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's mean, interesting that that little bit of recognition goes so far. It does. It's so but crazy. It's like when you do a job here at home, you know, yeah. you, you expect your boss to be like, look at your work and be like, Hey, you did a good job or be like, Hey, and you did, you did this wrong, but you know, you do this right here. Try it this way. Uh, there was nothing like that. 
Yeah, I it, that. It all, I mean, I spent eight and a half years with the government in customs and border protection, and I kind of the shoulder right here doesn't work as well anymore. I, in training, I had to uh, pick a guy up and kind of shove him off, and it just yeah. Uh, slap lesion can't be fixed um and my doctor told me like hey you got to be really careful um if it's not a required thing when you go to the range you, know, you have to qualify once a year with your intermediate weapons and your primary primary weapons three times a year yeah. uh, and then you know someone at headquarters gets a bug up their butt of wouldn't it be really cool to do this it's like well you know, <laughs> you're not the one taking the piss out there in seattle in january and yeah. cool doing this um so doctor said like if it's not required like you know if you screw up your shoulder again like it's it's not going to work anymore yeah and so i went to my chief who was my very first supervisor i was a supervisor now he was a chief and i was like hey this is this is what we got and he's like, well, we could get you a waiver, but we don't really know how to fill it out. So you're just going to have to do it or we're going to take away your gun. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. eight and a half yeah. years. And I called my wife and I'm like, I'm done. Like at this hour, you're going to treat me like eight and a half, just like that day. Like we don't really care. I'm like, yeah. All right. Like here it is. <laughs> They're like, well, you're not supposed to call our bluff. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is the idiocy of the government. And I would always get into this with them when you're saying they didn't want to pay to retrain you. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, 10 years in, all this experience, what's it gonna to cost to retrain you compared to to go out and recruit a new person, send them through basic training, send them to tech school, get those years, and like it's gonna cost 10 times as much with 10 yeah. times less experience. Um, and I hope someone in the government is listening who can do something like that is just idiotic. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's uh what my my wife and I were talking about it or, sorry uh what we were talking about was uh you know I do miss the camaraderie I miss mm -hmm. that brotherhood um some of the fun times that I had in there you know there were times that were fun there were other times that were hell um but you go back and you look at it and some people come out retired they do well you know, I'm 100% disabled now because the screws the military put in broke. They weren't titanium. They had to go in, take all of them out, put new ones in. They're causing more problems because they're bigger screws and they're cutting the muscles on the inside and about to make my, they're making my right hip spasm so bad it's going to, feels like it's going to break. Um, I've got, you know, concussion. I've got you know, shoulder problems. I've got uh, arthritis. I got ankle and knee problems. I got all kinds of things going on. So you look back at it and it's like, oh, we're just a commodity, you know, we're a tool for them to use for their purpose and their gain. And, uh, yeah. And they don't even use it wisely. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And they don't even thank you at the end. <laughs> well, yeah. And I think it, it's once you start commoditizing people and it's very easy to do the higher up you get in command because it is like, I've got to move this and I've got all these pieces and it is each one of those commodities is a life, like yeah. is a person. Um, and you have a lot of parallel, you know, when they, they did the individual replacement in Vietnam, um, one person in one person out thinking we'll always have trained people, but it was very hard for people. And so you, you kind of have a modern day correlation with that of, of just, 
singularly pushed to the side rather than the unit coming back yeah. at the same time. Um, and, and we talked about this a little already, but did that compound to what it was like to get out of the military to have been done singularly and just suddenly on there? Yeah. Um, I think I was actually lucky to be medically retired though, because I was med boarded out and, uh, that pushed me directly into the VA instantly. So the day I was out, you know, the next day I was in the VA. Oh, you didn't have to wait at all. You just like straight in. I was straight in. Wow. Because the med board process already had the paperwork over there, you know, ready to go. Yeah. Um, a lot of those Vietnam guys, they don't even want to touch the VA because they were treated so poorly afterwards. Um, and a lot of the guys that I know now that are getting out that, didn't take the chance to go in the day after yeah. they're still going through trouble trying to get in. Yeah. That's uh, a line, man. I do consider myself lucky that I got pushed into it. And I mean, I've gotten taken care of the Oklahoma city VA was actually really good. Um, but you know, I'm here in New Mexico now and I can honestly say that New Mexico VA, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not good. <laughs> I just had a vasectomy the other day or the other week. And the doctor was very rough. He was not, I don't think he was really that qualified. <laughs> not, not exactly a specialist in that, that field. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. <laughs> oh, I'm yeah. sorry that happened to you. <laughs> uh, I'm healed up now. So, <laughs> uh, how uh, have you talked to the guys that you serve with? Do you stay in touch with them? I do. I got a, I got a couple friends that I still stay in contact with. Um, bunch of them are still in they went over to germany or japan or there's one in alaska uh my, my best friend is actually he got out uh, he got cancer from the plane that i was in wow and got out and moved back to arkansas and started became a farmer <laughs> wow cool yeah. does the, the plane have asbestos in it for no or? it's just the radar it's high radiation you know it's coated the plane's coated in lead but it doesn't protect you and right because you're in it I'd walk by the high voltage line and I could feel the high voltage and radiation tingling inside my body as I walked by. And, uh, I thought I was going to get cancer from it, but oh, yeah. Yeah. It's good times right there. That's, oh yeah. Super science is the best. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we have the radiation sensors and the radiation trucks for cancer to, to x-ray. And the joke is it seems like, um, a lot of people who who have trouble and their marriage is getting pregnant after working on that machine suddenly you know like i had twins <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah there was a joke about our jet you know uh every two years uh we joked about our dna is changing because there'd be a, a spur of girls being born and then the next two years it's boys being born and it just kept changing every two years, and we couldn't figure out why. We just attributed it to the radiation on the jet. You just gotta time your time your uh, assignment if you want a boy or a girl. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Do a round on the jet suite so you can have your son. Yeah, I'm next. I'm next. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, talking about the VA, I mean, we talked to one Vietnam veteran who said he went in and they said, um, do you want to take this test for Agent Orange to see if you have it? And he said, mm -hmm. well, what are, like, what are the symptoms? And the VA told him, 
we don't know, but we'll be able to say you don't have it. And he's like, well, that's a great deal. And he said he left and never went back for 40 years. Yeah. 40 years. So, uh, I mean, luckily the guys we talked to are going to the VA now and they are talking, you know, they're getting into PTS groups and they are talking and that, that is the refrain of trying to tell the new generations like, don't wait. It feels good to be like, screw you guys. I'm not coming back, but don't wait 40 years to do it. Um, I was still going through some PTSD stuff and I thought I was fixed just from one go with a counselor or therapist. But, uh, I, since I've moved here, I've been going on and off to therapist here to help heal some trauma and stuff that I've been through. And honestly, if I hadn't done that, I probably wouldn't have went back to drinking and done all that stuff again. Because stuff still haunts you. And if you don't talk to somebody about it, you know, you got to, I mean, people are like, oh, it's not manly to go talk to a therapist about things. It's not any of this. It's like, really it is. Because if you have a family, it's not manly to take your own traumas out on them. It's more of a manly thing to go and heal yourself so you can treat your family right. Yeah. Handling your business is the manliest thing there is. Yeah. It's manly to say, hey, I'm going to step up and do what I need to do. Yeah. You know, and it is. And we talked to a doctor who used to be in charge of the specialized care at at Walter Reed. And, you know, he had a a lot of interesting things to say. Like he said, you know, he would rail against the administration is like if anyone were to go to you and say you need help like you would you would immediately you know put up your defenses and say no i don't and and even you know and so it is kind of like how you approach but it's uh it it kind of set us on the path of where we're at now of of what we witnessed with the vietnam veterans and Mm -hmm. some of these guys had never talked ever not i mean it, it just you know, mainly it was their family and, you know, it is a thing of, I don't want to tell my family, you know, one guy said, how do you tell your family what you did in the jungle? Um, and, and so we were kind of this neutral ground and, um, what Dr. Kleimer was saying is they took world war two vets who'd never talked 40, 50 years later. And it was just astonishing of just being able to sit down and say, tell me your story yeah uh, and they took the guys who were like living out in the nevada de- desert in a trailer like not talking to anyone and yeah. and that you know here we are with the know your know their story podcast because of a day in austin that kind of set us along this this path um but it is amazing to just not trying to heal anything or anything just be there to listen um yeah. but you know, going in that first day, um, what was that that like for you? I mean, obviously, it couldn't have been the easiest thing to meet someone and then be oh, like, yeah. talk. <laughs> it was one of those things is, uh, you know, most veterans don't want to talk about their experiences. And, you know, uh, my wife, I've told her more stories than I've ever told anyone in my life. Um, but, yeah, going into a therapist and you sit down, and you know he's talking to you trying to get you to talk and you know it's hard for you to say anything in response and you know uh 
stay on topic because you always want to go off and joke, you know, because that's what we're, that's what we end up doing when we have that kind of trauma. We just find jokes in everyday life situations, even some of the darkest things you can think. Um, but I think one thing that got to me is he looked me dead in the eye. He's like, did you kill anyone? And it's like, well, you don't ever, no one ever asks a veteran that really, unless they don't really know the military. Um, it was the first time I ever got asked that. And I just looked him in the eye and it just, a range of emotions hit me. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, I did. And it's like, do I feel good about it? I can honestly say no. <laughs> and then that got me to open up more and realize what I was going through. Yeah. And yeah, it is. Whenever I've gone in to talk to my kids class about being a cop, it's like, have you ever shot anyone? Have you ever drawn your gun? And yeah. you know, the last time I did it there in fourth grade and you're just like, what? <laughs> but yeah. And I, you know, you do see it in adults though. Oh, have you ever had to shoot anyone? But for, I mean, for your doctor, it was a very pointed, I mean, yeah, it was meant to elicit, um, I think, under under that care, like, doctor knew what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it took my took me a while to talk to my wife about things, but, you know, she does uh, my old-fashioned massage. So she was working on me one day and doing something, and my body just started doing this unwinding thing, and she's like, what was that? And I was like, oh, that's uh, this situation that happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, she kind of, she understood. She just, she didn't shy away, you know, look on me poorly like some people would do. She listened. Yeah, no, she's great. I think that's what a lot of people, a lot of us want, you know, on the inside. We want people to actually listen and hear our story and uh, hear what we've been through and what we're feeling about it. And just talking about it, just all those people out there that really don't talk, it helps to talk, you know? With yeah, kids, and it, kids, anyone. And I think that to be on the other end, there, there can be an awkwardness because like, how do I respond to that? How do I say the right thing? Or how do I, you know, it's not about trying to come up with answers. Oh, it's yeah. not about having the perfect thing. It's just sitting there without judgment and just listening. Yeah. Is and and it is hard to, especially, you know, like they say husbands and wives, women just want a, you know, you to be there and men want to be like, okay, we'll just go in and, you know, do this thing. It's like they don't want you to solve the problem, just listen to it. Right. Um, and I could get better at that with my wife, I admit. <laughs> um, I'm working on it too. I'm working yeah. on communicating. What? Better. You guys, you got to work on that. I'm telling you. <laughs> I have a happiness. I'm so good at it. <laughs> I have a very logical personality. So I just, you know, the logic, the steps kick in and be like, okay, do these three things. And I'm like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. So. Yeah. But yeah, it is. Um, Hopefully, if just one person out there is listening and saying, you know, cool, like maybe I will go, you know, take the Listen, have you found it easier over time to talk about things? I have. Uh, the more you talk about it, the easier it becomes. Um, honestly, though, when I'm in public and random strangers come up and, you know, they want to ask about things, I don't want to talk about the whole 
right you know, career that I had or you know talk about you know all the death stuff I don't want to talk about that um I just want to be out in public you know make friends talk about everyday things yeah um, for those heavy hitter things you know family friends therapists that's the perfect place for it other people who's been through it that's the perfect place for it yeah um, for yeah you don't want millions out there listening um you know a lot of veterans i mean i still have uh stuff come up like i large crowds i, I still can't be in them um you know i'm always on the lookout i watch everyone and everything uh, a lot of people don't understand that about veterans it's just how we are and uh, that's why i moved away from oklahoma city i couldn't stand the city anymore too many people yeah um but yeah just uh having people ask you a simple question about your 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 service that's that's good and gets you in conversation but um there's times when you know there's a time and place to talk about that other stuff yeah, yeah but you know, for the veterans out there listening it it is a good thing to find that time and place and actually talk do you uh go for the chair in the restaurant with your back to the wall? Do you want to see the door? Like, what's that like? <laughs> I always did. I always did. I carry my pistol on me everywhere. And I, I always sat facing the exits, knew which exits were the best option. And uh, always eyed everybody up and down for threats. Uh, but my wife, she actually always goes in and she takes the seat facing the door and makes me put my back to the door. And so I'm like, all right, you're my eyes. <laughs> when it's actually, it's helped a lot, you know, learning to get off of that edge. So, yeah, we'll, we'll go to restaurants and one of my daughters will take the seat, you know, facing the door and my wife will say, your dad's going to want that seat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what's the 4th of July like for you? Uh, the 4th of July doesn't bother me to actually, find the biggest and loudest explosive myself and set them off but uh can't do that here in new mexico <laughs> no sir uh, and, although i did sit under the town display last year and that was yeah, super intense that was uh that was pretty cool uh, i can honestly say my first two years out though going to a fireworks show i can feel my body shaking intense and sweat you know uh, but i forced myself to keep going get used to it again and i i can honestly say the biggest high i get is at the range shooting a gun <laughs> wow but yeah, i mean that's um, i mean that was what chris kyle was working on i mean unfortunately it, it went bad on the last day but yeah uh, there is a therapeutic uh, effect to, to it's kind of like having a little bit of the world still but uh yeah uh, paper targets are, are better targets. Um, <laughs> I like the sound of the steel poles when you put them out. You know, yeah. That, that ping. Oh, I love the ping of the plates. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a, what is it like for you, the, the thank you for your service, um, you know, discussion that goes on. Do you, is it awkward for you? Uh, how is that one? You know, it seems to be such a reflexive thing that people just say, uh, you know, what is it like for you? When I was in uniform and everybody would be like, Hey, thank you for your service. You know, back then I'd be like, Oh, cool. Thank you. You know, 
but now um it's it's an it's an awkward thing for me now mm. you know um they say thank you for your service and i i kind of falter a little bit i'm like uh yeah thank you <laughs> uh i don't know how to respond to that anymore <laughs> you say you're welcome just lead with you're welcome and point yeah. At <laughs> this point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Finger pistols. <laughs> <laughs> I did it for you. Yeah. <laughs> is it is it awkward though? Just because it seems to be such a one-off thing, like it, it seems yeah. to be something that people say, like you know, we've brought it up a couple times, and I don't mean to disparage Shark Tank. I love the show. Mm -hmm. um, but it is anytime there's a veteran it's just someone has to like first of all thank you for your service yeah and then, and then just and then i'm not blaming i think it's a very nice thing that they do to actually think of it but yeah it seems to be such a one-off thing like they're not even waiting for the response because it's just something to say if yeah. that did lead to a conversation would that be less talk not like obviously did you kill anyone like we've mm -hmm. covered but just a a small conversation would that be better or, or? it would be better uh because most of the time it feels like they're they just feel like they have to say it mm -hmm. and you know they feel like you want to hear it um or it's like company policy that they you know see a veteran they have to thank them um but when people are sincere and they want to know how you know, know you and they start a little conversation after saying that, it's it's nice on that point. It's not as awkward. But you know, when it feels like it's forced, then it's awkward. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean that's that's literally the last line of our of our bumper, our outro of, you know, thank you for your service should be the start of the conversation, not the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely uh, mr sweet uh how'd you end up how'd you end up coming to new mexico man Did you just um, bail from oklahoma um, city and nah that's a that's another ptsd trauma type thing i was going through a lot um my ex-wife whose mom lived here mm -hmm. took advantage of my ptsd self you know really used me and uh uh, messed with my head mm. and you know got me to move out here with them mooched off of me and then finally after getting some help I woke up and I realized what was going on and uh, you know she was cheating on me her alcohol she was abusive she attacked my daughter once and uh, I, I just said that's enough and I had the cops take her away and divorced her and I stayed though because I like the small town. I like the the outdoors, and I go fishing a lot. Go to the range a lot. You know, it's it's nice here. You can't really in Oklahoma. They had some ranges, but you know, it's, uh, no, it's there's too many people. Once you get it here, it's you're, you're not stuck, way. man. Yeah, <laughs> so that's how I ended up here. Cool. Yeah, I'm glad you stayed, man. It's nice to have you around. Yeah, thank you. It's yeah. nice to be here. It's a very beautiful country. It is. It is. Yeah, a lot of people. Sure. My brother actually, he asked me another question when he came to visit me. And I was just out on the Mesa one day and I was looking around. And then I went up to the mountain and was looking around there and I was like, holy crap, this 
sort of is similar to Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> terrain. Yeah, it's almost exact. That's why they, you know, and they and they do all sorts of training here for it for the same oh, reasons. Yeah. yeah, they do. And uh, one of my buddies, he's he's a veteran. He's next door, and he was a sniper, and he uh, he said he moved here for that familiarity. Hmm. <laughs> I could I could feel that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I'm just up here in Seattle dealing with, you know, autonomous zones inside our city. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Setting up new countries, taking them down. Nothing. Yeah. yeah just a normal day around one, here. One weekend at a time. Exactly. <laughs> we're, we're visiting with one of our veterans in North Carolina, and he was taking us through the downtown, showing us the broken windows from some of their, their riots. I'm yeah. Sorry. Mostly peaceful protests. <laughs> I'm sorry. In the English language, there's no. It's like it is peaceful or it's not. Yeah. Uh, Mostly peaceful, except for the, you know, violence. Yeah. <laughs> but we're driving through, and he's like, "Yeah, we got some broken windows there." And I was like, "Huh? Did they try to set up an entire new country inside your downtown?" He's like, "No." I'm like, "Amateurs. Amateurs." <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, what are you doing riding without trying to take over? Come on now. Yeah, come on. What are you doing? How many cop cars did they set on fire? Those are rookie numbers, man. You got to bring yeah. those numbers up. Are you going to exactly be riding? Or are you having a party in the street? This isn't party. <laughs> yeah, rookies. <laughs> so, oh, man. I, I, we, we've talked a little bit about advice that you would have for other veterans in terms of of talking, but anything that we haven't covered in, in that respect in, in terms of for, for Velo veterans who may be listening? Um, well, uh, family, you know, family's the biggest thing. Uh, support, you know, alcohol is not the answer for a lot of it. Uh, pain pills is not the answer. Drugs is not the answer. It always makes it worse. Um, and a lot of people just, they rely on that for their life to get through their PTSD or they rely on solitude and uh, honestly, it'll just eat you alive. So. Yeah. I mean, alcohol is an, an amplifier. You know, you meet people in college, be like, Oh, they're a happy drunk. It's like probably cause they're happy that they're going to go out to party and that amplified it. Yep. If, if you're feeling down and you start drinking, it's going to amplify that. Yeah. Um, so and it, it just kind of pushes it off yeah. uh, so we we're talking yeah. to a guy a couple of weeks ago he said it's uh it's corrosive and yeah. that the, the corrosive was a real real good word for it because it, it just eats away it you know there it, it solves right now but it doesn't solve tomorrow or the next day or the next day and so then you just get mired more and more into it oh yeah it's a long it's a long road to hoe but it's worth hoeing oh yeah and uh Take advantage of family, take advantage of finding a new hobby, uh, take advantage of the outdoors. It's very therapeutic. So staying locked up in a place is, yeah, just like this COVID. It makes a lot of people go crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that we've touched on that with a couple of people in terms of the amplification of of a lockdown for you know we've talked to so many people who their veterans groups have been shut down their pts groups have been shut down mm -hmm. you know they're not allowed you know they're, they're finally getting out and talking and now it's like no don't do that anymore um 
what can people do to check in with the veterans in their lives? Like what advice would you have? Uh, if you know someone, give them a call, you know, give them a call, text them, Facebook them. Uh, range day is always a good thing. Uh, take them to the river, go fishing, uh, you know, small groups. You can be in a small group, talk to them. Even if you have to wear a mask, it'll be okay. Uh, but if you know someone, reach out to them. Yeah. Don't just uh, leave people in the dark. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the lockdown comment brought up something we talked to a couple weeks ago uh, with Lieutenant Colonel Lozano. He said, you know, he checks in with his Marines. And it's been an interesting thing right now, not even just the lockdowns, but for veterans to come home to have fought for the country and then to come home and hear on the news everyone talking about, you know, this is such a terrible place and we need to drastically realter the country and change it. And I'm not, I'm not taking sides. I'm just, you know, mm-hmm. from his perspective, do you think that has an effect on veterans to, to come home to that or? or it, totally does. it totally does. Cause when I came home, it's like, well, uh, I didn't only go to war to fight for one person's rights. I fought for everyone's rights. I came home, uh, you know, when you're on the battlefield, you're out, deployed you're even in just flying doesn't matter if your boots on the ground flying wherever the people that's next to you are your brothers and sisters you know uh, one of my uh, master sergeants that I was in in with he quoted it best you know when we're with our brothers and sisters beside us we don't see race you know we don't see sex you know you're you're our brother our sister you're our friend you know, it doesn't matter. We fought for you. We protect you. Uh, we'll always have your back. And to come back and see a country divided and trying to divide itself upon sex or race or politics, uh, it's sad. You know, it's not what I fought for. I fought to have people come together and, you know, for this country as a whole. And if we can just stop looking at things as, a racial issue or as a sex issue or as a political issue and just start working together as human beings, you know, cause we're all human beings. We all bleed red. And if we can just have each other's backs, we can fix a lot of issues yeah, together. Man. Yeah. Free. Yeah. I mean, it is, I, I miss the days and, and Dustin and I, I mean, we've driven 30,000 miles around the country and we've been friends for years and we, I'm going to let the audience in on a clue here. We don't agree on everything. Yeah. <laughs> Some things we're drastically different on and you know what? We're still friends. That's yeah, an amazing thing. A, there's a line that I used to have to repeat as a kid, uh, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. And I yeah. feel like, not making the kids say that every day might be a step in the wrong direction. I think so too, because a lot of people don't understand these days. I get it a lot. You know, people hear that I have my own opinions about things and they get upset about it. And all of a sudden I'm the bad guy because I don't have the same opinion as them. Oh yeah. Same beliefs as them. It's like, well, everybody should be allowed to have their own beliefs, their own religion, their own uh, opinions about things. It's individuals. It makes us stronger as, you know, if we can come together and see each other has different sides to something, maybe we can fix something by using both opinions and both ideas, you know? (laughs) Yeah. 
I mean, I have daughters, 13 year old twin daughters, right? Kind of, you know, here in Seattle and, and it's hard, you know, their dad having been a police officer and, and their friends. Yeah. And, and, and my wife and I have taken the approach of, and I may be speaking at their school and, and my approach is I'm not here to rah, rah. I'm not here to tell you my side's right. Like no side is right. Like yeah. no side is a hundred percent right. No side is a hundred percent wrong. All I want to do is present something to you and make you think like yes. that's, I'm here to challenge, I'm going to challenge you, but not from the opinion that you're wrong and I'm right, but just in terms of here are some, here, here's how I see it from my perspective. Like, what does this make you feel? And if, uh, we'll see how it goes, but yeah, yeah, it is, we've lost that ability to want to be challenged. I sit on the board for Seattle U and uh, for the arts and sciences and, I get mad sometimes of this is supposed to be the time in kids' lives where we are challenging them, not oh, yeah. sheltering. Like this is their last stop on the way out the door. Oh, yeah. uh, and, and Dustin's gone up and spoken to him before. <laughs> <laughs> Could you not use that word, please? <laughs> yeah. He, he used a story word. off the air. So. Yeah. He used cool. a word where he got, and it's kind of like, seriously, like, you can't go into the world in a job interview and police people's language. Like it is. I mean, you can, you can do anything. This is America guy. Yeah. <laughs> true. But yeah, I'm talking. We know I've how talk, that works out. Yeah. I've talked to the students and I'm like, Hey, it's a rough world out there. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, and, and we have to do a better job of listening uh, nice. and, and knowing people's story. Oh, <laughs> yeah exactly meta so mr sweet those are all my questions man i'm out today all right that was good uh, Tom, is there anything else you want to say before we uh step out of here um nothing that i can think of no right on, man i really appreciate you guys having me on here though hey Wait. thanks for coming out i really appreciate it yeah i mean we we would not have any show if people didn't want to, you know, it, it's a big step to, to come on here. I've known you now for one hour and four minutes um, <laughs> and you put a lot of trust in us and I, I appreciate that. And I thank you. Yeah. Um, and, and since we've already had the talk, can I say thank you for your service? <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. You were supposed to start with that. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> so it can be the end of the conversation if you had a conversation. <laughs> You've been listening to the Know Their Story podcast. If you made it this far, we must be doing something right. Let us know by subscribing to our channel. And think about sitting down with the veterans in your life because saying thank you for your service should be the beginning of the conversation, not the end. <laughs>